I have been working through the book of Esther for a good while now. And in, in order for people who maybe haven't been with us for about 10 years, no, it's not that long, but for like four years, I don't know how long it's been, uh, I'm going to catch you up with the story. My idea with this is that if you've been here that whole time, at the end of my series on Esther, you should be pros and be able to tell me every detail of the story of Esther, because I retell it every single time. And you are going to be experts on this. So Esther is about a beautiful young Jewish uh, girl growing up in exile in the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. And she is brought up by her uncle Mordecai. And during the Book of Esther, she is taken from her family, probably by force, as part of an empire-wide kind of campaign to find the king a new wife. And against the odds, given that it is empire-wide and they get all the pretty virgins that they can find, she is the one that the king chooses after he tries them all out. It's quite an X-rated story if you look at it in uh, too much detail. Um, and she is picked to become queen. And on her uncle's advice, she keeps it a secret that she is a Jewess. Now, throughout most of the story, it soon becomes apparent that her people, the Jews, are under threat of being annihilated, headed up by their arch enemy, a guy called Haman, who is the second in charge after the king, the king's right-hand man. And uh, they are under threat of genocide, completely annihilated by their enemies on one specific day that he has chosen because he has convinced the king to stamp a decree allowing this to happen, that all the enemies of the Jew are allowed to attack and kill and take everything of the Jews on one specific day which they have chosen. And all of this is because he hates Esther's uncle, Mordecai, all because Esther's uncle won't bow down to him. So this guy, Haman, is so furious that this guy won't bow down to him when everyone else is, and he's a power-hungry guy, and he likes to get everything he wants. He decides, I'm not just going to get back at Mordecai. I'm going to annihilate all of his people. He doesn't realize that the queen is a Jew. And this opposition forces Esther to have to make a decision, whether she will act to try and save her people, or if she will hide behind the safety of the fact that no one knows that she's a Jewess, and that she's in the palace, and she's the king's queen, could she just stay there? And despite the risk to her own life in going to the king, in the end, she decides to go after her uncle convinces her this is why she's been placed there and that she should go. And after a series of feasts, she asks the king to come to a feast, just him and Haman, her arch enemy. And after a series of these feasts, she basically uncovers the whole plot to the king. She says, this man, Haman, is out to kill me and all my people. And quite understandably, the king flies into a rage at Haman, his second-hand man. Second-hand? Second in right-hand. Second in command, right-hand. Merge them all together, you get that. And... Uh, flies into a rage at him. Up until this point, he has just risen and risen and risen, more power, more honor. And at this point, 
He flies into a range and he ends up being hanged on the gallows which he had built himself to hang Esther's uncle Mordecai on. Suddenly, everything turns around. Esther is like any good telenovela or pantomime or hero, superhero story. There is a bad guy who seems to be rewarded to get more powerful, who all his evil schemes don't seem to go undercover and no one seems to notice. And there's a load of good guys who are under threat of being killed. And the people are in huge danger of being wiped out. And then suddenly, events unfold which cause everything to turn around. And there is a reversal of roles. Evil is made visible and justice is done. And so the good and the bad are seen for what they are and treated accordingly. And the people are saved from calamity. But we haven't quite got there yet uh, in my preaching series. Today, we are going to be looking at bits from chapters 8 to 10. You'll be pleased to know there are ch 10 chapters in Esther, and this is my penultimate sermon. And um, I've asked if Ed could come read the passage for us. And he's going to read um, the very beginning. It says, on that same day. And it's the same day that Haman has been taken and hung on the gallows. And it looks like everything is turning around. Sorry, that's probably not tall enough for you, is it? Is that all right, Ian? That should, that? should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke against the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I endure to see the tragedy that will happen to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. In it, the king granted the Jews who were in every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force that might attack them, their little children and women, and to take the enemy's goods as plunder. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown 
and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews had a dawn of new hope and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, so far in the story, all's good. She has been given the property of her arch enemy. Her uncle has been elevated to a rightful place uh, of honor. He is a good man who deserves respect. It's all good. And they've been able to put out a kind of counter edict. They can't get rid of the old edict altogether because that goes against the laws of their land. But they've put out this other edict which says they can defend themselves against it should they still choose to attack them. And so they celebrate, because it's all good, but it takes quite a dark turn. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And during that, 500 men, it says, were killed in the capital of Susa alone, and the 10 sons of Haman. And the king goes to Esther and says, what would you like? And now some people think at this point, Esther got power hungry. She was... Um, basically taken by what had been oppressing her, she, it's, it's a common thing that happens, that you then gain the power, you're corrupted by it, and then you get power hungry. And she went a bit mad because she asked for another day in the capital of Susa to get rid of more enemies. Now, it could be that she was corrupted by power, or it could be that she knew of an imminent threat that was still there, that there were people still out to attack her people, and she wanted to give them permission to defend themselves for another day because she knew otherwise they would get up to no good. We don't know that for sure, but basically she asked for another day, just in the capital, that they would defend themselves against their enemies. The Jews who are in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of, of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. There is an interesting thing on this. I don't know if you noticed. In the edict that they put out saying you're allowed to defend yourselves, they also said you're allowed to take all the plunder from the people that you defend yourselves against. But it repeats it several times through the chapter that they laid no hands on the plunder and we think that probably this is trying to emphasize the fact that they were having to defend themselves. They were being attacked, and it was either defend their lives or just give up. But what they don't do is they do throw some restraint. They don't take the plunder. God's people had got in trouble before for taking stuff, for making it about gaining more. Haman was out to gain more power, to get more for himself. This isn't what this is about. This is about them defending their life against evil oppression. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies 
and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. And then it says that they, in fact, you read the last bit. Uh, they rested and made that a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And so they had relief from their enemies, and they were delivered from this imminent threat, and they celebrated it. But what can we get out of this? Thanks, Ed. I, ever since I started the Book of Esther, I started it ages ago, and I thought, oh, I'll be ages till I get to chapter 8, 9, 10, and I thought, but I've been dreading it ever since, <laughs> ever since I ever started it. What do we get from this? What do we here in Sutton Coldfield Baptist Church in 2023 learn from this seemingly horrendous story? What can we learn? And there were three things that struck me about this story, and all three of them have to do with who we are as a people. Why do we bother coming together on a Sunday? Why do we do this? Why do we gather as small groups? Why do we come to activities and things that we do together? Why do we meet up for meals or coffees? Why do we do that? Why do we bother? And where I'm going to go with this is that I'm going to talk about three things that I got from this passage that I think we are encouraged to do as a people, that it is who we are and why we're here. Firstly, out of compassion for each other. Secondly, to combat injustice. And thirdly, to celebrate. And within that, I'm going to look a little bit at how we can grow in compassion and a little bit about what that injustice is that we're combating. And then at the end, hopefully, we can stand together and celebrate together and celebrate communion together. So that is where we're going. But let's start with compassion. Esther, why did she do this? She personally, her enemy had been got rid of. Her uncle was in a good place. Surely the king would protect her. Surely she wasn't in any danger. Why bother? She's okay. The passage tells us for how can I endure to see the tragedy that will happen to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther does this out of compassion for her people. It's not just about her. Her love for the life and welfare of her and Mordecai's people is more important than their own personal affairs. And I wonder, as I was thinking about this, I thought, do I love my people more than myself? Am I thinking about you guys when I'm thinking about how I go about my day to day? And if not, because I think often I fall short in this, I don't know about you guys, but if not, how can I grow in this love? And I want to suggest three things of how we can grow in compassion. And they're all to do with being disciplined. And we hate that word as a society. We don't like discipline. We like to be able to do whatever the heck we want, whenever the heck we want, and be free and easy. But as I was thinking about discipline, this week, uh, well, every week, I meet up with a whole group of people from Hong Kong that have joined us recently. And uh, it's open to anyone for whom English isn't a first language. And we just spend time chatting together. But it just so happens that they're all from Hong Kong. And uh, one of the ladies said 
we said, have you got any questions? And she said, do you have any tips for how to understand English people when they're talking to each other and they're going really fast? <laughs> and uh, probably a little note to all of us to slow down when there's people who don't speak English as a first language. But it reminded me of when I went on my year abroad to Spain. And when I first got there, I remember thinking exactly the same thing. There were people chatting amongst themselves in Spanish with native speakers. And I thought, I don't stand a chance. What am I doing in this place? I haven't got a clue what they're going on about. It was a whole different accent. I didn't know what was going on. And then I remember somewhere through the year, I don't know quite when it happened, and it happened gradually, I chose purposefully throughout that time to hang out with people that spoke in Spanish. I chose not to hang out with all the English students because I thought, I'm just going to talk English all year, and that's not the point of me being here. And so I hung out with a lot of Spanish speakers, and it, I remember at one point there were two of them chatting, a Colombian and an Argentinian. And I thought, you know what? I can understand everything they're saying. And suddenly, it had kind of clicked. It wasn't a conscious thing that had happened. It was a gradual thing. I'd made the decision to put myself in that place where I would be hearing it, which wasn't easy. And over time, suddenly, I was able to do something naturally, which at the beginning had been really difficult and taken a conscious decision to work at hard. And this is what we want to do as discipline. What kind of people do we want to be? Because whatever we do, we are forming habits. But do we want to choose what those habits are? Do we want to think about who we're going to be remembered as in the future? And if so, we need to choose what we put in place. And as we grow those disciplines, at some point, without even realizing, we'll realize, oh, I'm doing this naturally. I've got compassion for these people over myself. I want to do stuff for them because I love them, and that's because we've put certain things in place. And I just want to suggest three things quickly that I think are fundamental to this. Firstly, gathering. Making it a priority when we feel like it, but most importantly, when we don't feel like it, of coming, of spending time with other people. You might think you've got nothing out of it, but you've probably encouraged someone. If there was no one else here tonight, the singing wouldn't be great if I was here on my own. <laughs> If there was no one else here tonight, who would we chat to with coffee afterwards? There's so much that we don't realize. Just having that discipline of coming, of coming to whatever activity it is midweek. And the second thing is serving. Where can we serve each other? Who can we invite over for a meal on a regular basis because they're on their own? What activity can we maybe serve at? Are there children's activities we can help at? Are there tea and coffee that we can make? Could we prepare the communion? All kinds of things. Could we go on the sound desk or the computer? Whatever it might be. Is there something that we think, oh, I could do that? And that would grow our involvement and therefore our love for our people, for God's people. And thirdly, are we praying for each other? When we scatter, because we're not going to spend it all together, when we go out and we're not here together, do we remember what's going on in other people's lives? Do we send them a text and say, how's it going? If we put in habits of praying for specific people, of remembering to ask them, how's your week been? What's been going on? How can I pray for you? If we put those habits in over time, it will become a natural thing that we're just thinking about them. They become a part of our lives. We have compassion for them, and God grows it in us as well.
my son this week, I've been reading through Lord of the Rings with my kids. And uh, we were just reading it this week, and suddenly my son said, you know what? None of these good guys in the fellowship are as strong as the big bad guy, are they? Sauron. None of them on their own are as strong as him. And he said, but all together, they beat him, don't they? And I said, yeah. And the reason that all together they beat him is that they have a real love for each other. When it gets to the hardest points in the Lord of the Ring where they think they can't carry on, it says several times, on one, one bit, it is because of their love for Aragorn, they carry on. If you don't know who this is, don't worry. Another bit, it's Sam's love for Frodo, keeps him going. When they think they have no strength left, they carry on because they love each other. If we have that love for one another, we are going to grow and be a people that are far more effective in sharing the love of Jesus when we're out and scattered about than if we're on our own. If we forget and think, no, I can't be bothered together. I'm not coming together. I'd rather sleep in this morning, or I'd rather go to bed early. I don't want to gather. We'll be out on our own. We'll be picked off. Because the fact is, we are in a battle, whether we like it or not. It's not a battle like these ones, but we are in a battle. And together, we're stronger. And that brings us on to the second thing that we come together for, to combat injustice. Now, it says in Esther. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now there's a few things in this. Firstly, they laid no hands on the plunder. It wasn't about themselves, same as with compassion. It wasn't about self-promotion. It was about defending their lives. But also, they gathered. They were stronger together. They didn't stay out in separate. They gathered because that way they could defend themselves. But when I talk about combating injustice, am I saying there's huge numbers there that were killed? Am I saying go out and kill everyone that hates you? <laughs> Definitely not what I'm saying. I am not saying that. And we could go down a whole rabbit hole on pacifism or just war, but I don't think that's the most pressing thing for us today. I'm happy to talk about it, but I don't think that that's where we're going today. But just in case you're wondering, Esther and Mordecai were living in a time in the Old Testament before the New Testament came. The decree that they sent out kept to the laws that God had given them, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But we are living after the New Testament, and Jesus came and gave an even more radical law. Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was better than their surrounding nations at the time. It was measured. But Jesus came and gave an even more radical answer. He said, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So I'm not saying go out and physically fight your enemies. And uh, what I am saying is that God's kingdom will mean, when it comes in its fullness, that all injustice and evil will need to be wiped out. And we want that. We want heaven, right? We want injustice to be gone. 
But if all injustice is right out, for justice to be established, evil needs to be destroyed. And so who or what is the enemy of God's people today, if we're to do this? And how can we destroy these enemies? So we've looked at compassion and how we can grow by gathering and serving and praying for each other. Now we're looking at combating injustice and how we're better together, but who are our enemies? I'm just going to look at three enemies that I think you might come up with a different list. But I think these three enemies, Haman was the enemy of the Jews. They had lots of other enemies, clearly, because these people attacked them. But who are the big enemies of God's people today? And how can we combat them? There's a famous quote. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I think that the devil is using this trick today in this society. We think we haven't got any enemies. We're all right. Go with the flow. What's the problem? God's people are fine. We can gather here. And so, all of God's people don't realize that we are actually in a battle. And so we become ineffective because we just sit back. What's the point of a soldier if he doesn't know he's in a battle? It's not going to be much use. And we're warned about this battle. In Ephesians, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, like it was in Esther's situation, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, what are these forces? What are three big ones that I would say are the top that are looking to destroy us? I think they are age-old, age-old idols, not like a, a, a metal sculpture, but things, anything that replaces God as Lord of our lives, that skews our desires and actions towards selfishness. God's people turn to other gods over and over. And this is why Esther's people were in exile under the Persian Empire. That's why they were there in the first place. And these gods aren't new, but I think we face three big enemies as God's people and as a society as a whole if we're going to live whole good lives, which is what we're aiming towards for the coming of God's kingdom as we build it. And I think these three things can be illustrated in one small video because I think we all are susceptible to these three things and it comes from a very early age. They can all be illustrated in this little video. Now, if you hold that in mind, what are our enemies today? The first one is more. I want more. I want this. I want that. The slightly more sophisticated way of putting it is consumerism. And Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so I wonder, where have we spent more time looking at what we could have rather than who we can love? 
When have we spent hours scrolling down adverts, down online shops, wandering around, thinking about what we can get rather than about who we can show compassion to? Where has this taken over, skewed our desires? And the second thing that I think that video of Allegra, my daughter, could illustrate is the second God. Mine. My way. I want to do it my way. And the other way of putting it is individualism. Where we want things my way, but we want it just for me, and it's not about anyone else. And Oswald Chambers says, beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. Are you willing to be interdependent instead of independent? Are you willing to say, God will be Lord of my life? Or do you want that control? When have we chosen to criticize or undermine rather than submitting because we want to be in charge? And it's not that criticizing is always bad, but when have we done that in a way because we want control and we want it in our way? And this is a huge enemy to the church, a huge enemy to the unity that shows that we love each other. When we allow secondary issues to become so important that we start hating each other rather than loving each other. We don't want to listen to each other. We don't want to understand each other. We don't want to encourage each other to go out and make disciples that love and obey Jesus. We want our point heard, our way to be done. And then the third one, it's not fair. Now, I hear this all the time because I have two kids. And it always comes in the context of, He's got more than me. She got it before me. You're treating him better. It's not fair. I want it just like him. I want the same thing as him. I don't want to be different. I want the same, and it's not fair. And we call this relativism. And it basically means that God's people end up no different to any other people group. And it's a really dangerous enemy of God's people. Because if we're no different, what's the good news that we've got to share? What do we have to offer a broken world? Just more of what they've already got, if we're exactly the same? What's the point of existing? In the end, we fade out into nothingness because there's no purpose in us as a church. Because we're just the same as everyone else. But God's people have always wanted to be the same. They've always said, it's not fair. In the Bible, said, it's not fair. They've got a king. Give us a king. And we say, it's not fair. Why can't we do things like this? Why does the Bible say that? But do we want to be the same? Or do we want to be a people of good news, a distinctive people that bring something different to a broken world, that bring a new way of doing things? And this is what Jesus was talking about when he said that we are the salt of the earth. What is the point of salt if it's lost its saltiness? What is the point of us if we've lost that distinctiveness? And this is a huge enemy of ours today. In what areas could we look distinctively God's rather than the same 
as society. And so, how can we destroy these enemies? How can we stand up to them? And we often think our first reaction is, we'll be counterculture, we'll speak up, we'll shout out on social media, we'll go to rallies, we'll go to demonstrations. There's nothing bad in any of those things in and of themselves. But that wasn't the first place Esther went to. There was a lot that came behind the scenes before Esther spoke out. And I want us to start at the beginning. And there's a whole thing of formation, of submission. But first comes confession, admitting, can't do this on my own. Mordecai had to point out to Esther her need to make her stand up for her people. She then had to admit her weakness to her people and ask them to stand with her by fasting. We are a weak and broken people and we need help and we need forgiveness. And if we can't admit that, then our attempts at combating injustice will all fall short. We won't do it in God's way. We'll do it in our way and it will cause more problems. And a lot of people think, oh, confession. It's a really Catholic thing. I came to a Baptist church tonight. Why are you talking to me about this? Confession is such a powerful and wonderful gift from God. It's like going to a doctor. If you don't confess, it's like going to a doctor and saying, right, doctor, what can you do for me? I'm generally ill. Can you sort me out? And the doctor say, well, in what way are you ill? I'm just generally ill, generally sick. Can you sort me out? Whereas confession... To confess is to say, I want to name my symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want healing completely and comprehensively. We want to name them. It's not a judgment thing. We're not being judged. It's a diagnosis saying, I'm sick. I'm weak. I can't do it on my own. Will you forgive me and then will you help me? And that's where we start. Because a lot of the injustices start within us. And if we're to fight them, we need to look at ourselves first. And so I wanted to just spend a moment looking at these questions before we go on to the last one of celebrating and celebrating communion, where we remember how we receive this forgiveness. What happened on the cross that means that we can confess and receive forgiveness? Just going to spend a few moments in silence, just reflecting on these, thinking about what your individual, personal symptoms are, and asking for forgiveness. And then I'm going to play a song, and then I'll lead us into the final part. of the Lord is the kindness of the Lord with every breath we take the gift of life and grace the power of the Lord is the meekness of the Lord who bore humanity with brave humility lets your mercy flow through us your mercy your mercy 
Father, we thank you that when we choose to turn towards you, when we choose to turn away from our own foolish mistakes, that you forgive us. We thank you that you are here with us together and that you use each one of us. Amen. And so, how do God's people react when injustices are overcome, when deliverance does come? And we see it clearly in the story of Esther. We come together to celebrate. And the Jews were particularly good at this. They were very good at celebrating. And tomorrow is actually Purim, which is the celebration that starts in Esther. The Jews will be celebrating that tomorrow, which I hadn't realized. It's just a funny coincidence. But the celebration that we saw at the end of the passage, and it said, for the Jews had a dawn of new hope and gladness and joy and honor. And then they met together and ate together and shared food with the poor. That was the beginning. And next time I talk, we'll be looking a little bit more at it. Uh, because then they say, keep this celebration to remember the deliverance that we had from our enemies in Persia. And that celebration is tomorrow for the Jews. They still celebrate it today. But the interesting thing about celebration is you can't have it on its own. We can't just celebrate because it comes as a contrast to what's happened. Deliverance doesn't happen out of nothingness. Deliverance come out of a difficult situation. There is a sense in which we can only appreciate the wondrous joy of deliverance if we also remember the pain and terror that preceded it. And we're going to celebrate, which is the word that we use, communion together, which is a perfect illustration of this. It remembers the pain and the suffering but it celebrates the deliverance that came through that. It remembers the state we were in before, and it remembers what Jesus went through in order for us to be delivered. There's the suffering, and then there's the joy of celebrating that comes from the deliverance. 
And so uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. And there are little cups and bread at the back if you haven't already got one. And invite the worship group to come back up and join me. And just to finish, we come together out of a sense of compassion for each other. Jesus died for us because he loved us. And he wanted each one of us to be able to be in a relationship with him and to be in his kingdom where there will be no injustice. And so we seek to be a disciplined people that gather, that serve, and that pray together. And we also join together to combat injustice. Jesus' death on the cross means death is defeated. All injustice will be defeated. Are we going to be on that side or are we going to be on the other side? Which side of the battle are we going to be on? We can't be passive. And so we choose to stand up and consciously again and again confess and bring ourselves back. Confess consumerism, individualism and relativism in our lives. And so, because he died for us, because there is deliverance for us, we celebrate. Father, we thank you that you gave up your body, that your blood was shed, that you gave up your life for us so that we might have life in all its fullness. We thank you for your deliverance. Amen.